All right, everybody, welcome back. Just reading through comments real quick. For those of you who said, hey, have you started yet? My screen's not moving. Uh, the answer is no, I haven't, and now I will. All right, any questions on what we covered earlier prior to the break? All right, let's keep moving along. So reading for you, if you haven't read the book already by Malcolm Gladwell, Blink is a phenomenal read. And I've got listed the um, early re uh, earlier reading suggestions for you. So they're all listed right there. Um, one of the things you can do, there's an, in fact, see if he's on the call today. I'm sure he is, just to look through the list right here. Yeah, he's on. So <clears throat> there's a guy who's reached out a couple of times over the years saying, hey, Chris, I've gone through the reading list. Do you have more that I could read? And <clears throat> my comment back to him was, why don't you go and start all over on the reading list? from the first class in POWs and any other books that I've read and go through them and you'll find it's like a new reading list. And the reason for that is since the last time you've read it or last time you read that particular book, whichever one it is, you've changed and you will, as a result, pick up and hear things differently your next time reading through that book. And so it does end up being almost like an entirely new reading list. In addition to rereading it, what I also strongly suggest you do is a number of those books have exercises included. <clears throat> the vast majority of you, probably 95%, if not higher, of you, when you read through the list the first time, you didn't put a lot of effort into the uh, various exercises that were included in each book. Take the time to do that. There's value in doing that. Um, I think y'all know when and I are putting together a psychology course, a big portion of the course is going to be doing the exercises that are included. That's where the details get um, flushed out. And that's where you're going to see improvement in yourself in trying to you learn how to self-coach, self-diagnose whatever issues are cropping up in trading. But it only comes as a result of doing the exercises. Sometimes they're real quick things, other times they may last, it may take you a fair amount of time to get through that, which is fine. It's usually those are the ones that end up being the most valuable. So if you're looking for more books to read, start all over on the POWs list. And each time in class, if you've been paying attention, I give you another book to read. I even gave you one earlier this morning. So they're there if you're listening. Next page. <clears throat> is to have you realize that you should not ever think that you're the only one who's struggling with this. Everybody does. Um, I hear this, sorry, way to say this. 
when if I were to say, you know, some a, a veteran fast track student recently told me about discussions they're having with their fellow veteran fast track folks. And you might think if it's first time here again, oh, so he was talking with somebody in the last couple of months and this is what has happened. <clears throat> if you've taken the class two, three or four times, you've heard me use those exact words and you think, wait a minute, he said that the first time I heard was in the class. Well, just so you know, I hear it all the time. So I'm not exaggerating when I say I've heard it recently, but I've heard it over and over and over and over again recently. So it keeps going on. And what happens is as you gain experience at this, it used to be that what you would do when you're talking with a fellow student that's been through this as long as you have or in the same range of iterations, you talk a lot about setups and you talk about a lot about what you're going through from an emotion perspective. As you get deeper into it, you find that you talk a tiny bit about the setups and you don't even mention the emotions. And the reason for that is that everyone knows that everyone else is going through the same emotional minefield and they don't want to bring themselves down by having to listen to somebody else's woes and misery and all the mental crap that they're dealing with. They don't want to do it. And they also realize that they don't want to risk bringing down someone else by sharing their own mental crap that they're dealing with. And on the other side of it, they also don't necessarily want to hear that someone else has reached the other side because then they get annoyed that they're not yet at that point. And in fact, it's funny, I mentioned that um, the interview a little bit earlier. One of the students that I had, he had sent a question uh, about something. I said, hey, go listen to this interview. And he sent me a, it's not a voicemail message, but you know, where you record it, record a message and then send that to somebody. It was like an audio text message. And in the message, he said, hey, when I heard your suggestion, go listen to the interview, I did. And I listened to it and I loved it, but it, it made me mad. And then, you know, I just, I let it sit and stew for a little bit. And then later on that evening, I listened to it again and I got mad again and I fell asleep. I must've been thinking about it when I woke up because when I woke up in the morning, I walked outside and I just yelled, fuck, right? So upset. And the reason he was doing that was because in that interview, he heard the guy talk about all the issues that this guy had been facing. And he realized he hadn't done anything about it. And he heard that this guy had reached, you know, had gotten through the, the challenge part. And he was still stuck in the depths of it. And it was because he hadn't been applying, he'd been treating it like a hobby and had not been treating it like a profession. And the screaming of the F-bomb outside at the top of his lungs was the annoyed and pissed off at himself for having dropped the ball. You got to realize the successful people had the same problems that you're facing. And the only difference is they just kept struggling away at it, kept plugging away at it. It's very common to feel like you're spinning your wheels. And the reason for that is you're expecting change and that's what's causing you to get frustrated. That's what's causing you to maybe get depressed or annoyed. 
<clears throat> the view to the horizon never changes. It's always just as far away as it, as it was before, as it always has been. The only way you can gauge your progress is not by looking forward, you have to look back. If you wanna see how far you truly have come, normally I would say come to the next pause session and listen to the questions that the beginners ask. But I'm taking the summer off, so you can't do that again until September. But what you could do, told you earlier, we're doing a mixer on July 8th. Show up at that and talk with people. And there will be a number of first time or, you know, early in this, early, uh, people that are early in the process. In fact, I was just talking to a lady today <clears throat> who recently signed up for the class and said, you really ought to think about coming to this event. She's a new mom. She's got a two month old. She said, oh my gosh, I would jump at the chance. Is it okay if I bring the baby? It's like, yeah, it doesn't, as long as you're okay having them in a group. She said, oh no, I'm fully exposed. I'm not a problem. But so you've got a brand new student and in the couple of discussions we've had, it hasn't been anything close to what's on the charts, what's the strategy, what's the whatever. It's all about mindset questions. And it's really cool because you would think that she'd been at this for 12, 18 months based on the questions that she's asking. She's already got her head deep, that deep into the mindset aspects of this. And so she was itching at the opportunity to be able to go out and talk with like-minded folks because she's not been to a live class yet. Um, and so it's interesting to hear from the perspective of a new person. If you do show up at that event or show up at the next live POWs, right, the one we'll do in September, you got to remember as you're listening to the questions or the comments from the newer people, Understand you were once in their shoes and it was not that long ago. And it shows that you have come a very long way. You got to give yourself credit for that. What I'd suggest you do is at least once a year, if not a couple times a year, go and look back over your past practice trades and look back through your journal entries. Right? Remember some of you, a journal entry, what do you mean? You're supposed to be writing a journal, personal journal every day. And you go back and you read through those journal entries and then you can get a gauge on how far you've come. Don't be surprised if you're embarrassed by, by what you wrote. Don't be surprised if you're embarrassed at some of the trades you took way back when, because you look at them now and you see you never would touch it. And so the solution, if ever you feel like you're spinning your wheels, just go back and do that. And that will give you a perspective on how far you've come, how far you've progressed. And then you turn around, stare at the horizon, get back on the horse and get back to work. The horizon is what keeps you living. And then this is gonna sound odd, but by the time you've reached your goal, it shouldn't mean anything to you anymore. And the reason for that is you're looking for the next thing beyond that. That goal is just another, it's another milestone step, but you're looking three, four, five steps out. <clears throat> happened a number of years ago. A student wasn't really that excited when he made the announcement he was going to retire at work the next morning. He'd been chasing it for over five years, so it wasn't anything new. But more importantly, he knew, you know, five years ago, that was a huge thing to be able to get to there. 
But in the last 12 months prior to getting there, he already knew he was going to get there. And he was looking at the next thing beyond that. So he expected at that point to reach the level, the state of retirement, right? Meaning he walked away from the job. But he wasn't looking at that. He was be looking, he was looking well beyond that step to the next item that was on the horizon. There's a term for that, or there's a, a play that was written about that called Godot. The, just understand the horizon never gets closer, right? Because you've always got new goals that are further out. And what that does is that pushes the horizon out even further. And so because the horizon is pushed out further, it's a very common sensation to feel like your wheels are spinning. There's a play that was called, is or was called Waiting for Godot, uh, Samuel Beckett. And it's a, it talks about waiting for the next thing. In this, case, in this case, we could call it the horizon. And most people have it in their mind that if they work hard enough, then there's going to come a day when they wake up and say, okay, I'm done. But it doesn't work that way. It's like you, you have a gym membership. You go to the gym regularly. You don't wake up one day and say, that's it. I'm in shape. The number is what I want it to be on the scale. My measurements are what they want to be, whether it's your waist, your arm, your thigh, whatever you measure, you want them to be. And so that means you cancel the gym membership. That's insane. That's ludicrous. It doesn't happen that way. You reach the goal, but your eyes should be on the next goal. And you keep working towards that. And the only time that happens where you cancel the gym membership, and that's at the finish line of life. And that's when you die. But up until that day, you keep working towards this. It never ends. <clears throat> Next page talks about, I didn't know the best way to describe it, so I call them life or death trades. And I wrestle with the, the best term, the phrasing or terminology for how to refer to this type of thinking or how, that way of thinking and how to describe the mindset that's required for it. Because you have to understand that the stock market is not win-win. It's win-lose. You either are the winner or you're the loser. You're the predator or you're prey. You're eating lunch or you are the lunch. There's no scenario where you win and the market maker wins. You have to understand it's a deadly business. The market maker wants your money. And I've tried for years to come up with some type of a visual that describes how serious the situation is. And some people like it and other people don't. I don't, I honestly don't care if you can relate to the visual or not. What I care about is that you understand the severity of the situation in trading. So my suggestion, my request of you is come up with whatever visual is most meaningful for you, <clears throat> excuse me, and go with that. If you think it's a good one that I could use and maybe could help, help explain it to other hundreds of other people, then let me know. But until that point in time, you got to go with the one that I use, unless you come up with your own. And the way I think about it is you got to ask yourself, I ask myself, would I do this trade knowing that there's a knife at the throat of my loved ones? 
And if the trade, I'm not worried about it being a winning or a losing trade. Is it properly executed? And if it's not, then that knife goes across their throat. That is very graphic. And that is very uncomfortable. And some people don't like it. And that's okay. It's not for you. That's what I use. And that keeps me grounded as to how serious this is. If you don't like to think of it that way, that's on you. Come up with your own. But you have to understand it's a deadly serious endeavor. And again, it's not about being a winning or a losing trade. It's about proper execution where you're following your rules. And I believe all your trades should be done from that life or death perspective. What happens as a result is you'll trade less. But what happens as a result is you'll trade better. And there's still going to be trades that perfectly executed, they're not going to work. But as long as you're following all the rules, you just cut your losses quick, keep them small, you live to survive another day and trade another day. Because it is absolutely critical that you cut your losses quick when the trade isn't working. And so you have to follow the rules so that you keep your losses small. Because the way to get ahead in this arena, in this endeavor, is not about the massive wins. It's about getting rid of the big losses. And the most important thing you have is not your account balance. Your most important possession is your confidence. And you do all that you can to protect it. As your trades work, and now you, st you start to develop a great batting average, a great, a great win rate, what happens is your confidence grows. And then as your confidence grows, now you slowly increase your trade size. Because think about it, you gotta build confidence to be able to do the following. As an example, if you make 50% on an options trade, which if you've been practicing doing some real money, that's not a big deal. It doesn't happen all the time, but it isn't something where when it happens, you jump up and down and, and cheer and hoot and holler. <clears throat> it happens. So think about that. In order to make $100,000 on an options trade, that says you need a trade size of $200,000 if you make 50%. If you make 20%, you need a half a million dollar trade size to make 100K on a win. But going with a 50% number, so to make 100K, you have to push 200 on a trade. And that means following the money management rules, you need a trading account balance of at least 400 grand. But conservatively, you want it to be much higher because I don't think you're gonna put 50% of your trading account at risk on a single trade with those kind of dollars. So it's gonna be even larger trading account size using a smaller percentage of the overall in doing this. If the option costs, let's say $10, with a $200,000 trade, that would say you're buying 200 contracts. And 200 contracts means you're controlling 20,000 shares. Now do the math on that 
doing that, that means that you don't want to overly impact the day's volume. You know, so that means you'd only do that type of trade on stocks that trade more than 2 million shares a day, right? Because I don't want to control more than 1%. So if it's 2 million shares a day, 10% would be 200,000, 1% would be 20,000. Now, I know some of you hear me, you're still stuck on the make 100,000 bucks on an options trade. You're wrapped up in the number. This is about the process and about the money management aspect to it. That's in your trading account. Let's talk about your income account. You got to be selective on the trades you do in your income account, but you don't become so selective that your stringent criteria will limit you to doing very few trades during the year. Remember, the purpose of the income account is to make in the range of 3 to 5% per trade at the rate of about one a month. It's not about maximizing the trade. You're just supposed to make sure that you can make at least 3 to 5% because you want to remain retired once the account is fully funded. That says then, but by only doing life or death trades, knife at the throat, you're going to miss some trades. But now compare that versus having long periods of time between losses. Get to decide what's, what's a better one for you. As I said earlier, my suggestion, create some type of visualization, some mental visual one that's personal to you, that makes the point that the stock market's a deadly battleground. As I said, I picture the knife at the throat, but whatever works for you is fine. Got it in my notes here, and I've told this most years, and I know a lot of you have heard this before, some of you haven't, so I'm gonna run through it again. For those of you who've heard, heard it before, maybe you'll pick up a different message off this. But it, uh, I share the story because I was fascinated by it, um, and it really talks to a mindset as to what's required in doing this, not just in trading, but in life. And the story is back in the early mid-90s, I uh, had a friend, girlfriend that I was dating, and her, folk, her grandparents lived out in a place called Sun City, Arizona, which is a, a retirement community a little bit west of Phoenix, I think, if I remember right. But it's a pretty good size, uh, say pretty good size in quotes, right? it's, it's a pretty damn big community of retirees. And I think you got to be over, I don't know, 55 or 60 to move in there. But so it's a whole bunch of gray hairs running around the neighborhood. And she was going to go out and see them for a weekend. She said, hey, you should come with me because, you know, they've heard about you. And I know my grandfather would get a, a big, big charge out of meeting you. Like, all right, I wasn't really looking forward to go out and hanging out at, at what I thought was going to be an old folks home for the weekend, but no problem, went out there. So we get there and uh, we sit down and, you know, he wasn't giving me the third degree of, you know, what's your intent with my granddaughter type thing. It was just a nice guy. We're just having a good conversation. He said, so I understand that you work for IBM and you're in sales and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, I did the same thing that you do when I was working and he was in his late seventies at the time. I said, oh, I, I see you work for IBM. He said, no, no, I worked for GE, General Electric. He said, back in the sixties, 
they used to sell mainframe computers and there were like six or seven companies. IBM was one of them. And I would go out on the pre-sales stuff and, you know, whether it was fact finding info, gathering, helping do the setup. And he said, I understand that's what you do. I said, yeah. And I said, but I'm not that good at it. And he kind of looked at me and he smiled and he said, what do you mean? And I said, I, I can do it and I'm not bad at it, but I'm really not that good. I said, so you probably were a lot better at it than I am. And if you ask me some techie questions, I'm going to look like a fool. I said, what I've learned to do really well is find people that know what they're doing. And I am very, very nice to them. And I bring them out to help in whatever issue we've got. I said, so I've got a really good Rolodex. Um, I'm really good about getting to know people and what makes them tick and you know what what keeps them going. And I'm just nice about asking them to come out and help me. And I end up looking like a genius in the eye of the customer because I brought somebody who's really smart with me and it actually works. And he started, he kind of, he looked at me and first he thought it was being a little, or what do you want to call it? Very um, humble. And I was actually being very honest. Like, I don't understand most of this shit that they do. I, and it, I wasn't <laughs> interested in it. Um, but I knew enough to know who the smart people were. And he laughed and he said, well, I used to really get into it. And he was talking war stories about whatever. And we chatted for a few minutes and he said, yes, we have that in common. He said, what else do you do? He said, well, I've really started in you know, the last few years, I've started to really um, hone in on the stock market and talked about that a little bit. And he was kind of curious. He was telling me about the shares that he had in GE that he'd owned for, you know, 30 or three decades and blah, blah, blah. And he said, what he said, so you do that, that keeps the mental thing going. And he said, you know, I can't encourage you enough to stay at that. He said, that will end up doing you well. Um, he said, what do you do for fun? I said, well, I, uh, you know, I do triathlons, you know, run, bike and swim on the weekends. So, you know, like the physical aspect. And I said, I did something a few weeks ago that I really want to get into, but I don't think I should. So it's one um, hobby that I know I would absolutely love but I don't want another hobby hanging on the wall in the garage. And he goes, what's that? And I said, I went skydiving. And I said, I loved it. And I've been like telling myself, don't go, don't go. But I really want to get into it. But I just don't think it'd be the smartest thing. And he said, you know, it's funny you say that. And he said, I used to skydive during the war in World War II. Um, and, he, and I said, oh, interesting. And he said, yeah. He goes, I think I've got, he goes, I'll, I'll ask, uh, I can't remember the lady's name, but, you know, grandma to go pull the, uh, pull the parachute down. I know it's up in a box up in the closet. And so he hollers over at her and tells her to get it. And she goes, you know, shuffling away to go in the back bedroom to dig it out. And he's talking some more. And he said, you know, as I think about it, he said, what you do in the stock market is like what I did during the war. And I looked down and I said, you traded during the war? He said, no, no. He said, but... He said, with the stock market, he said, you're putting your future in your hands. And that's what I did during the war. And I looked at him again, like this puzzled look. And this was probably, I think, um, Private Ryan, or Saving Private Ryan came out about 95. And it had been out maybe about six months. And so I had seen the film and, and I'd been in World War II. I didn't know how to say thank you for your service. I didn't, it wasn't appropriate to bring up at that point. But I had that in the back of my mind. And he said, let me tell you a little story. And he said, I graduated high school in 1943. And he said, you know, Pearl Harbor happened, you know, late 41. 
And by the time the end of my junior year in high school, so it would have been the summer of 42, the U.S. was drafting darn near every kid that was coming out of high school for the war effort. And he said, I was graduating the next year. And he said, as we got close to my graduation, he said, I would grow up in Ohio, a small town. There were the high school had maybe 20 boys and 20 girls in the class in a small community. He said, of the class that graduated before me, he said, there were 20 boys in that class. By the time at my graduation, 14 of them had been killed in the war, whether it was in the Pacific or whether it was in Europe. He said, and it was doing a number across the population of young teenagers at that time. And he said, I knew I was going to be drafted. And he, he's telling me a story. He's looking at me, I'm thinking, wow, this is like I'm listening to pri you know, Saving Private Ryan. This is the real life thing. And he said, I knew I was going to get drafted. He said, I did not want to go into a situation where somebody else was going to try and shoot me because of the color of my shirt. He said, I, he goes, I had nothing against the Japanese. I had nothing against the, the Germans or whoever else we were fighting in Europe. Um, he said, I believed in the U.S. cause, but he goes, I didn't want somebody shooting me because I was wearing a certain color shirt. And I had to figure out a way that that didn't happen. And one of the ways I figured out was if I did really well on all the aptitude tests going through uh, basic training, then I could choose my field. He said, so I studied very hard. And he said, I've got a, I have a good mathematical mind. He said, I was chosen if I wanted to do it to go into um, munitions disarmament, I think is the way he described it. And I was like, what is that? Munitions, bond. And I kind of looked and I said, tell me that what I think it is. And he said, yeah, he said, my job was to go and disarm bombs. I said, you chose to do that. He said, absolutely. I said, oh, you know, I'm leaning in. It's like, I know there's, explain this to me. And he said, so in order, he said, I get sent to the Pacific. And he said, all the major battles that you've heard about on the islands, he said, many of those I went into. He said, but I wasn't in the battle. I went in afterwards. He said, what would happen is you know, Japanese or whomever were holding an island, there would be a big battle. If we lost, I didn't get sent in. If we won, I get sent in. I had to parachute in with a team of snipers. And he said, there was my team and a sniper team. And the snipers team, their job was to rid any strag get rid of any stragglers that were there to protect us. He said, I had a team of disarmament guys. And what we would do, he said, calling it a team is a misnomer. He said, we were a group, but we all worked individually. And we had a sniper or two assigned to each one of us. And our job was to go down to the beaches or the airfields, and we had to disarm the bombs that were there that had not exploded. He said, because once we were done with that, then the U.S. teams would come in afterwards and come in to set up base. But it had to be safe for the, um, the boats and airplanes, whatever else, to land. And so we had to go in and disarm a bomb. And he said, what happens on that, it's not a team effort. You do it on your own. And he said, what I loved about it was I didn't have to worry about somebody shooting at me because of the color of my shirt. He said it happened a couple of times. We had a sniper and they took care of that. But generally, that wasn't the concern. I just had to be sure to do what I knew how to do and do it correctly. Because if I did it wrong, 
I wouldn't know. But what he meant was the bomb goes off, he's gone. And he said, I loved having my future in my hands. And he said, and that's why I say what you do in trading in the stock market, it's the same thing that I did. And I remember looking at him saying, uh, all due respect, what I do is nothing close to what you did. He said, no. He said, you're right. It's not. But he said, we're not in time. It was back in the 90s. He said, we're not in times of war. He said, back in the 40s, that's what it was about. And it was the only field I knew that I could find in the military where I had my future in my own hands. He said, you with the stock market? He said, I understand it. You have your future in your hands. And again, I kind of argued. I said, I'll do respect. He said, when you make a mistake, you lose your life. When I make a mistake, I lose some money. And he said, he said, no argument. He said, but it, it, times are not like that today. He said, you don't need to have that level of commitment that I did. He said, but you're doing the same thing. Just the stakes are a little less. But times were different back then. I said, okay. And he said, to me, they're the same thing. I'm thinking to myself, I can't argue with this guy. I have too much respect for him. But he sees it in a way that I didn't. Um, and then just a phenomenal conversation. I'll leave out a couple parts that were a little gory after that. But as we went through more of the discussion, I came to realize he truly felt that the stock market was a modern-day equivalent of a war zone. It was not life and death. but was life and death of your money? And this is from a guy that was effectively a war hero, not, you know, not, not trying to put accolades on him that aren't deserved. But if you look at what he was going through from a mindset perspective, knowing you walk up to a, a hunk of metal, that if you move it incorrectly, it could blow up and he's gone. And I remember thinking back and I was like, I wonder if it really is like that. You know, is there really just some bomb that sits there? And probably about 10 years ago, went to the Philippines with my wife's family. And the kids, there's four kids on my wife's side, and they wanted to take mom and, back, mom and dad back to the Philippines. They wanted to see, have mom and dad show the kids the small village that they grew up in. So we drive, you know, six hours outside of Manila, the small little mountainous village, and her mom is walking us around saying, this is where I went to school. It's a small little community. Three, four, five hundred people maybe lived in this small little village. And she was pointing out, and I'd heard stories before. She said, this is where we walked out of the church and we saw airplanes overhead. And we were pointing up to them and they were circling. We thought it was the Americans. We started cheering. And next thing you know, they're strafing us and they misread the planes. It was the Japanese and they were shooting at them. Mom said, I dove into this ditch right here. And thinking, wow, this, I'm, this is a history lesson. This is phenomenal. Um, and then we walked into the school where she went. And up on the, as you walk into the main building of the school, they have a bomb that is probably four feet long, probably diameter foot and a half, maybe two feet. And it looks, I've never seen a bomb before, but it looks like everything you've seen in the old war movies kind of a propeller thing in the back and 
and it's there. And I looked at it and, and it said this landed on our on the school grounds on this such and such a date, 1944. And I think, holy crap, this and I remember thinking back to grandpa, this would have been what he was in there to disarm. And I looked at my mother in law and I said, um, I know the Philip Filipinos aren't that big on a work site, you know, <laughs> work site safety and OSHA, you know, occupational safety hazard and environment or associated, whatever the hell that stands for. I said, are you sure that this thing has been disarmed? And she looked at me and she smiled. She goes, ah, you never know. <laughs> but, okay. But sure enough, there were armaments that had not gone off. And they put this thing up in, you know, this little village outside Manila, six hours outside of Manila, as a reminder. And it just made me think back to that guy back in 95, whose job it was to disarm things like that had not gone off. And he equated it to trading. So I want you to think about that. And the reason I share that is some of you don't take this serious. It's not a life or death thing, right? What he did is far beyond what hopefully any of us ever have to do. And if you've been in the service, I truly appreciate your, um, your sacrifice and your commitment to do that for us. Because you having done that and those who do that allow all of us to do what we do. We can't, I don't, we don't give you enough thanks. I don't know that we could give you enough thanks, but I truly do appreciate it. But I look back on what that guy did and how he equates it to the stock market. And then I hear some of the comments from people. You truly don't appreciate the seriousness of this. And I know you don't understand the opportunities that are there. Lamb said it way back when. It was, it was one of the best lines. He's had many, many good lines, but it was one of the best ones he ever that I think he has ever used, which was to say the best gift that we could give you as a student is to give you freedom, put you at time freedom for about a month. And it doesn't mean you're sitting on an, a six, seven, eight, or you know, seven, eight, nine-figure account balance. It's got nothing to do with that. It's having the ability for a month or two to do what you want to do when you want to do it, with whom you want to do it. It doesn't mean you go out and buy a Lamborghini. It doesn't mean you're driving around in a Rolls. It doesn't mean you go buy a mansion in Beverly Hills or in the Hollywood Hills. It's got nothing to do with that. What it means is that you wake up in the morning and you're free. Your time is yours. The time is yours to use as you see fit. You get 24 hours. And you use it however you see fit. And you get to do that for about a month, maybe two months. And you realize how cool this freedom, this time freedom thing truly is. And then the meanest, but the best thing that we could do at that point is to rip it away. Rip it right out from under your nose and say, okay, back to your eight to five in the job that you don't like, doing shit that you don't like. That you, you know, stuff you were complaining about before. And at that point, you would wake up and say, show me those rules again and tell me exactly what to do. And then you would do everything in your power to stick to those, knowing the reward that you had a taste of that you want to get back to. That is cool, truly the coolest thing and the best thing I could do, not to give it to you, but to take it away. Because at that point, 
your level of seriousness would go off the charts. And you just get to decide if you're going to take on that level of seriousness, embody that without us having to give it to you first. The choice is yours. Next thing to talk about is trading around Fed minutes. Typically, there's movement immediately following announcements by the Federal Reserve. Every once in a while, there's some students that will try and trade around the Fed. They're trying to capture the movement. <clears throat> and you've learned that just because the market moves a lot during amateur hour, it does not mean that you must trade there. And similarly, just because price is volatile, right after the Fed announcements, FOMC announcement, does not mean that you trade. You can still trade ahead of the Fed meetings, only if a trade exists. It's no different than seeing an earnings trade that's setting up two or three days ahead of time. But you gotta be aware, the market maker definitely inflates the options in front of the release of FOMC minutes, just like he does or she does or the machine does in front of every other known market moving event. And always remember, you gotta get out before the announcement because you don't know what's gonna be announced and you don't know how the market's gonna react because you don't know what they're gonna say in the small, the small print. Not just that they raised or lowered interest rates, but also what they expect to do in the future. It is not worth trying to capture that. Some of you will say, well, what if I bought a call and a put? Or what if I sold the call and a put? So you know, if it doesn't move one way, I'll capture the other one. Try it, on, don't do it, it isn't worth your time, but if you're gonna do it, do it on paper. And then you'll see and go, oh, that's why he said not to do it. You might make money on one, you're going to make money on one side of it, maybe, but it may not be enough to offset the inflated premium you had to pay for the position that's winning. And you also have to make up for the inflated premium on the position that's losing. It's not worth your time. But if you don't want to believe me and you got to learn the lesson on your own the hard way, do it on paper. Do it over probably three or four announcements, and then you'll see. You go, ah, that Hanson, not only is he good looking, he's actually pretty smart. Any questions on what we've covered so far? Hey, John, I appreciate the comment. <clears throat> Great story on what he put in there. Draws the picture that failing to take this seriously can result in either, in either failing to reach financial freedom or having financial freedom only to lose it because you failed to follow the rules. Any other comments or questions? Oops, there it is. Hey Manny, does your uh, does your mic work? Hey, can you hear me? Yep, you're there. What's up? <laughs> so what you said, I, I love the fact that you got it. So uh, tell me about the book that I recommended before and you picked up. Oh, I was reading my Hitch in Hell. It's um, 
by a, a, one of the veterans. I think he was out in uh, the World War II. And Lester Tenney. What was that? His name is Lester Tenney. Yeah, correct. And um, I don't know, just an amazing book. It just talks about his struggle because he got captured by the Japanese out in the, Philipp out in the Philippines. And um, it, it just talks about his struggle as he was walking down. And I don't know, it's just an amazing the Bataan, So the story on that, it's the Bataan, Bataan, I don't know how to pronounce it, Bataan Death March. And for those of you that don't, I didn't know all the history on this, a little bit this is outside of trading, but it really does point to the mindset. Um, and I may be off a little bit on the factual stuff on the history side, but go with me a little bit. Um, Pearl Harbor was attacked December 7th. And then I think it was later that month or early January, the Japanese then invaded the Philippines because now they had um, shut down the U.S. Navy. And so if I remember correctly, I think the Japanese had estimated they could take over the Philippines in many, you remember 45, 60 days, something like that was their estimate. And there were Americans, there were American soldiers there supporting the Philippines, and they held on for something like three or four months, but much longer than the Japanese expected. And then finally, they had to surrender. It did not make the news in the U.S. because the media and the uh, uh, administration didn't want the U.S. populace to see that we've just lost two big battles. So they got hit in, or we, they, whatever it was, the U.S. got hit in the in uh, Pearl Harbor. And then in the first battle, after having declared war, then they lost to the Japanese in the Philippines and had to surrender. And they didn't want to have that negative um, news hit the U.S. media. So it got very little press. What had happened was, Manny, do you remember the number? 50,000, 60,000, some huge number of surrenders. Do you remember? It was around there. It was, I think, 50,000. Something like that. So huge number of um, American and Filipinos surrendered. And they were forced to go on what they call the Bataan Death March. They marched across a, a peninsula in the Philippines. Something like 50, 60 miles. I don't remember the exact number. Um, but the conditions were brutal. Uh, very hot, very humid. And if they tripped, if they fell, they were beaten or killed on the spot. And so if they had to go to the bathroom, they had to go to the bathroom while they were walking. So imagine, you know, peeing or pooping while you're walking, because if you stop, you're going to get beaten. And so this guy's telling the story. He had just recently gotten to the Philippines, got in, involved in this, and then had to go on surrender. They marched him 60 miles across, saw many of his colleagues either die or be killed, gets put into a POW camp, ultimately gets shipped over to Japan, and is put to work and hard labor. His, his family didn't know if he was alive or not. They assumed he was dead. Um, he was in a POW camp not too far outside of Nagasaki, which is where the second nuclear bomb was dropped. And he tells the story that, I'm trying to remember, uh, many have, are, where are you in the book? Have they already dropped the bomb or no? Yeah, they just dropped the bomb and they're about to leave the camp. And so, and he talks about, they, over the years, they had figured out if the U.S. won the war, they would have signals and they could tell that the U.S. had won. And it was things like the guards would be nicer. They might get a little bit better food the last couple of days. And so those kind of things happened. 
and they realize that, oh, we think we've got it. And he talked about, if I remember if it was this book, didn't he talk about seeing the mushroom cloud over Nagasaki? He did. Yep. Which and is so, amazing. He, he yes. thought a landing, a landing plane for <laughs> a landing platform for the Japanese to land their planes on. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the story on this is, and if you read the history on this, the U.S. wasn't sure where where they were going to drop the uh, the atomic bomb. And they knew that there were a couple of hidden POW camps in and around the area. And the second one, they weren't sure if they're going to drop on Nagasaki or there was another town or another city nearby. And I think the reason they chose Nagasaki is because it was further away from where they thought the POW camps were. But you read this book and the second bomb gets dropped. They see this big mushroom cloud. They have no idea what's going on. And then they end up, the gates open and they can leave. But as you go through all this, the things that he talks about for setting small goals and the small achievements to get them through the day-to-day grind of being in that environment for literally the duration of the war. It's a phenomenal read. I, I cannot stress that book enough about mindset. My Hitch in Hell, Lester Tenney, T-E-N-N. Manny, is it E-Y? Do you have the book there? I think it's T-E-N-N-E-Y. Uh, no. That's fine. Yeah, that's all right. But My Hitch in Hell. But you you, uh, you got some of the mindset things out of it? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Your, your point on Godot, uh, going back a couple of slides, just spot on to, to what uh, My Hitch in Hell conveys. I mean... He, he just recently married right before he enlisted into the into the army, and uh, all he could think about was his wife and getting back to her the entire time. And um, things ended up going, things ended up working out for him. But I think just that entire vision and that uh, idea in his mind got him through that entire thing. And I think he was there for years, like four or five years. It was the duration of the war. Yeah, the duration of the war. Yes, he, he was a POW for the full the full stent of it. Yeah, and he never spoke of her, no letters, no nothing, and he still just that vision. Just yep. Are you at the point yet where he goes back and and they meet up? No, not yet. <clears throat> All right, I don't want to ruin it for you. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> There's a little surprise ending for you, but I won't ruin it. <laughs> All right, thanks, man. No, no problem. And many, one question for many. After reading that, and I'm assuming you saw Saving Private Ryan, I, I'm stunned that Spielberg didn't make a movie out of this. Oh, agreed. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Phenomenal story. Cool. Appreciate you. No worries. Thank you. Uh, questions, comments, any others? Hey, uh, Chris, can you hear me? Right. Yeah, you're good. Hey, a uh, quick question. Earlier, you were just talking about, uh, early in the slides, uh, dealing with sort of negative commentary or people kind of unloading their things on one another. Um, I guess thoughts or suggestions on how to deal with um, people I know that are taking the class or taking it or, and maybe kind of doing it their own way, but unloading some of their baggage um, in conversation. I mean, my, one of my goals has been to try to avoid conversations. Uh, but just um, wondering your thoughts. <laughs> so, since a couple of them are on the line, is this with your brothers? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Thankfully, not them. But there's there's another another brother-in-law that I uh, that I have that's a little bit more challenging. Just so, wondering your what, thoughts on how to deal with that. 
Yeah, one of the things that I that I think I've shared this before is like if I'm sitting in a group and someone starts talking about a a strategy, a trade, the market, whatever, and especially if they're talking about a trade that I may be in or a stock that I'm either in or eyeing, I will say to myself, and I try and keep it low every once in a while, I say it a little too loud and I might offend somebody, but I'll just, I'll mumble to myself, say, this guy's an idiot. And so whatever they say after that, it's like the ramp, you know, I get some homeless people around where I live down on the beach and you get these people, you know, you walk past them and they tell you that they, that you smell and you stink. And it's like, dude, you smell like urine. <laughs> you're telling me that I smell like you're an idiot. You know, it's just and, and in my mind, it's like, I don't care what that guy says. I feel bad for him. But whatever evil, wicked, nasty thing he can say to me, it's going to be water off a duck. I'm not worried about what that guy what that person's opinion is of me, much different than if a near and dear friend, my wife, a family member were to tell me that I smell. All right, I'm going to pay attention to that one. But someone whose opinion I don't value, I don't worry about it. And so that's a, that's a harsh extreme, but you could try and use that when you hear negative commentary from people. The other thing you can do on the negative commentary is turn it into a game and see how far over the edge you can either push them or how many questions it takes before they back off. <laughs> oh, you'll never make money in the stock market. Say, oh, what? I'm curious. Why would you say that? Oh, well, just because I'm like, man, that's, that's wild. Why would you say that? I've read that before. Why would you say that? And see if you can get to about five whys, and usually they'll back off. Or they'll be so heated in their... Um, stance that they lose reason and then they won't bring it up with you again yeah i've taken i've taken the first approach to try to just sort of dismiss mentally uh the commentary i like i like the second one it sounds a little bit more fun yeah it's more <laughs> and then the other thing you can do you're not there yet i don't think you're there yet from a freedom or an earnings perspective but what I'll do with people at times is if I'm getting a pushback and I'm, I'm feeling a little bit feisty, I'll just look at them and say, you know, if I want to make the money that you make, I'll ask for your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's a fair point. Well, I mean, I, the way, the way I think about it is, um, you know, like it's, it's not working for you. So, um, why, why am I, why am I having this conversation? It's just sometimes it's hard to, um, to keep hearing some of the same sort of nonsense uh, from people that I sort of care about or have, I'm trying to be helpful uh, to or with. And, um, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to sort of think about it differently and uh, reshift your, your mind. Yeah. And it's, it, it's also the challenge to, you know, if it's, if it's a family, something, you know, uh, uh, I guess family is the right word, um, whatever that is where you're going to see them regularly, you can't be too much of an asshole, right? Because you're going to have to see them, you know, every year at Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter or whatever the holiday get-together schedule is. So you can't be too much of a putz. Um, Wen just sent me a text that said, there's a great line that says, if you're not in the arena, also, if you're not in the arena, also getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. Yeah, if I love that. If you're not in the arena also getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. 
And so typically you don't hear that type of, <clears throat> if some, if, how do I say this? I know lots of people that trade, that trade in different strategies or approaches than I do that are successful. <clears throat> and when I get together with them, we never bash each other's strategies, we could care less, right? There's a bazillion different strategies and approaches you can use to be a success. But it's the ones that will trash or try and trash what you're doing, they're not a success at it. And so knowing that, one of the things you could also say is just that. To say, hey, you know, brother-in-law or, you know, friend of friend, whatever, you know, person that I see regularly, thankfully it's only occasionally. <clears throat> it's interesting that you come in and, and throw all this negative stuff towards what I'm doing or what I'm looking at. But it's funny because there's other people that may not use the method I do, but they do very well in the stock market. They never, ever bash a method. They never, ever bash the stock market. And yet you, who isn't a success at it, is bashing it. That's like a fat person saying you can't get skinny. Hey, Chris. Hold on a sec. Yasha, does that, does that help a little bit, maybe? Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. I mean, I, I take a lot of that approach. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at... Um, letting things kind of, uh, you know, fall off my back sort of thing. You're diplomatic. Yeah, I, I tend to be. And, uh, and I'm okay with, with it. It's, it's more about like, yeah, like if, if you're not doing this properly, if you're not following the rules, if you're not really in the arena, I get tired of he hearing some of the, some of the nonsense and the, and the questions and doubting. And I'm like, look, like I can only, I can only be there for so much. So I try to separate myself uh, from some of those conversations as much as I can. But yeah, with some with some of these folks that I'm thinking of, it's it's like you know friends or or, or uh, family that I can't quite ignore completely. But yeah, it just it's a it's a mental block for me. I kind of have to get into sometime. To, uh, a, a, yeah. a couple of times I've tried using this too, and I just thought of as you were talking, where I've had the negative stuff. Someone will spout it, and I'll look at them and say, "Do you know anyone that's a surgeon?" And before they can answer, I'll say, "You know, because I know a few of them." And I don't ask what their win rate is, but I know they lose people on the table sometimes, right? So it's unfortunately, it's not 100% success rate when someone is doing surgery. You do have losses on the table. But man, the last thing I do is go up to a doc and say, dude, you suck. Surgery doesn't work. Because I don't know what it takes to be a surgeon. And just like you don't know what it takes to do what I do. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me why you would try and kick my, it ties back to Wen's, Wen's quote there, ties back to, you know, why you would try and kick my ass when you're not even in the arena. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks, man, for that feedback. I appreciate it. No problem. No problem. Somebody else was commenting and I cut them off. Oh, yeah, Chris, this is me. This is Tavares. Um, yeah, kind of to. Hey, Tavares, move in a little closer. You're kind of faint. Okay, can you hear me a little better now? Yep, much better. Okay, yeah, no, kind of what I, what I kind of do with, or not necessarily do with people, but my response, or I guess comeback, if you will, for people who, if it's even something that they do, my thing is always asking, how much do you practice what it is that either I'm doing or what it is that they're questioning that they can or can't do, you know? Yep. And they you always kind of some kind of, yeah, it's like, well, if you've never done this before, how much do you practice 
doing what it is that I'm doing or, you know, whether it be trying to go to the gym or anything. And then they just kind of just sit and think about what, well, I did it for like a month. Well, like, well, you get a month's worth of results, you know? Yasha, isn't it cool to have people on the call that are smarter than you and me? Always. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Tavares, that's cool. Right on. That's very cool. You make you make Yasha and I, well, you make me look like a jackass. And Yasha still looks pretty smart. <laughs> but that's a much better way to approach it. But not nearly as in your face, though. <laughs> <laughs> nah. I, I wouldn't yeah, no, be afraid I, to. Oh, no, Go ahead, I, Tim. I, I know the 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 uh, Phil and Yash. I, I I totally do. <laughs> yep, that's cool. Tavares, thank you. Tim, what were you gonna say? Uh, thanks. Um, thank you. Um, I was just gonna say, you know, it, it's your survival of your mindset. If if somebody's really getting on you, don't be afraid to block that person's number for text and phone. I have done that, and that person's still on my block list. <laughs> and that, so, Tim, I mean, if you think about it, that's what we're saying before, right? Your confidence is the thing you've got to protect the most. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's extreme and maybe that's not warranted in your case, but this particular person had a, a pretty good uh, gift for, you know, pushing people's buttons, not just mine. So, I mean, you know, that, that's a race in the whole of nothing else. But okay. it's that too. But, but Tim, that's a good point because there are some people that person A can say, you know, uh, quote, word, 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 end quote and it doesn't get under your skin. Person B says those exact words, and dude, that gets under your skin, you can't get rid of it. Yep. So Absolutely. some of it comes from, it's not just how it's said, but who says it, and what your history is there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I put that out there, thanks. I like it, thank you. Anybody else? Hey, Chris. Yes, sir. Hey, so I have a psychology of a evolving trader type of a comment slash confession to make slash call for help <laughs> good thing i didn't use your name so we'll, we'll keep it we'll keep you anonymous yeah it's all right this is ha uh, you gave it away <laughs> no, no. um so so one thing that i that i find myself um struggling with uh and dealing with right now and has to do with the life or death trades which you know, I've gone through this several times and, and uh, this is the first time that I'm like, okay, this applies to me after all these years, I have to pay attention. Right. Yep. So, so one thing that I'm, that I'm dealing with is my mindset and risk tolerance slash pushing the artistic trades on my income account versus a rollover IRA. Right. Um, you know, I'm a few years away from relying on the IRA, right? So I, in, from my mind perspective, I'm thinking, okay, that account, uh, it's okay, you know, if I take a little bit more risk because I have a few more years to build it up versus the income account, okay, I'm relying on the income account, right? The funny thing is I know what the right thing that I should do, and I probably know what you're going to tell me, but I'm like, holy crap. I'm, why am I even, you know, why do I have a different risk tolerance for one account versus trading in one account versus the other? Um, and so I'm hoping to make that comment and maybe get a beat down to, uh, <laughs> to get my mind straight. 
So what you're, what you're telling me is on Monday, you want to date cute girls. And on Tuesday, you want to date ugly girls. Well, I think on Tuesday, <laughs> um, maybe maybe the confusion is art, artistic trades, which are a little bit higher risk and require more experience. Those are so ugly girls. Those are ugly girls. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'm taking a chance on an ugly girl. Okay. So yes. Yeah. So don't. There's yeah. enough good looking ones out there. You don't need to waste your energy on something that isn't high quality. Mm -hmm. So as a evolving. Let's just not call them, AJ, let's not call them ugly girls. Ugly girls with meth scabs. Right. So, so those, those I get and those I recognize, right? And so I don't touch those, right? But I'm in the phase of my learning and, and executing where, okay, maybe this is a valid artistic trade and therefore it's okay to take a little bit more risk. You know, she's, you know, she's not a crackhead, right? But okay, I, I, want, <laughs> I, I want to push it a little bit. And I'm using this account that I don't need for, you know, a few more years to do that is. But you do need it. Yes. Okay. You do need it. Yeah. You, you do need the account. So it's not. <clears throat> Think about this. Somebody just timed in. It's a great way to say it. He said, if... <laughs> hold on. Let me get the words that he used perfectly. So two things come up. Oh, awesome. Someone else had the one I was going to say also. Said, if this guy has these thoughts about artistic trade trades, he's not ready to trade artistic trades. Okay. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. And then the other person said, tell him to go listen to Tony's testimonials. Yeah, I heard it. I heard it twice. But yeah, what he said on there is you can make a million dollars if you just trade the foundational ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So prom, there's, there's enough prom queens where you can make a ton of money. Right. Yeah, no, all, all those are valid points and, and totally resonate with it. I, I agree. Thank you for that. And yeah, I, I totally love Tony's um, testimonial. I heard it twice, took notes because that's, he made a lot of points that, that I really needed at this time. So, so uh, thanks Tony for that. Um, so, so I guess maybe the question is, how should I ease into uh, getting experience with artistic trades? Because right now my approach is, okay, I'll use an account that I don't need for a period of time and therefore do it's an less risky, but that's not the right mindset. No, do an artistic trade with one share. Okay. Okay. So that, that, that resolves your or addresses your, oh, I got to participate thing until you can, until that itch is no longer needs to be scratched. Mm -hmm. But just do it with one share. And then you can see how your batting average is. You learn a whole bunch about yourself, about the trade. But when it's wrong, it costs you literally 30 cents. It costs you $1.30, right? We're not risking dollars. The other reason you want to be a different, a different way to think about it too is in the IRA whether it's a rollover or traditional doesn't matter. Some people take the approach of, well, I can trade the money there because I don't need it for a few years. Mm -hmm. 
think, oh no, you're thinking the wrong way. You want to, and again, uh, let me go back to page zero on the presentation. I'm not a financial advisor. I can't give it financial advice, none of that stuff. So having said that, and knowing that I don't have any clue what I'm talking about, think of it this way. What if you took a portion of your traditional IRA or a rollover IRA and did a conversion of that to a Roth? And now traded that Roth, maybe using an ultra strategy and get that up to a seven figure balance, however long that takes you. Mm -hmm. And now, and I don't know what your lifestyle is or what your standard of living, you know, expense numbers are, but let's say you get it up to a, a seven figure number. If you can make 10% a year on that in earnings, which you ought to be able to do, you could do a withdrawal of 10%. Right, so the balance remains flat or slightly growing, and that gives you 100k a year tax free, which is the equivalent of about what 150, 175, something like that, on a tax free basis. Yeah, and, yeah. And when you, and and you do that, dude. If you can't make 10 percent, you're not doing it right. <laughs> you're Tony saying you make a million a year. 10%, come on. Yeah. And so you're doing that off of a Roth. You're getting a very comfortable six-figure number, tax-free. But you don't do that chasing, chasing artistic crap. You do that waiting for the prom queens. Look for the, look for the best and the, and the most attractive setups. The foundational setups. Right, right. But yeah. don't 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 take the approach of well the the, the IRA dollars there I don't need them for a few years because mm -hmm. remember you're limited into how much contribution you, you can put as much money as you can earn into your taxable account but there's a limit to what you can put into your IRAs every year. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about that perspective. That, yeah. So you yeah. don't want to have a lot. You want to. I'm of. I'm of a strong opinion. You don't want to be touching your trading the IRA dollars until you truly know what you're doing because you don't want to take losses there mm -hmm. because it's limited on what you can replenish, what rate you can replenish it on an annual basis. But on your taxable accounts, you know, if if you win a small lottery, let's say you have a hundred thousand dollar loss in your taxable account, go in, you know, go in a lottery and you win a hundred grand, it drops right back in there. You're back where you were. But you could not drop that hundred K into an IRA. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, all, all those are good points and appreciate the everybody's comments. Uh, I, again, I knew I had the wrong mindset and the wrong approach. At the same time, I was like, wow, I was feeling this like safety net because, you know, I'm not touching that money for, for a while. But no, I appreciate the, the feedback and the comments. That does help. So one other one other one, AJ, that could help. Somebody just typed in and he said, hey, is it really life or death if I tell myself I'm OK losing some of this? Yeah, definitely not. not. No, definitely not. That says that you're not treating it like a life or death approach. Right. right. And you're saying, okay, this is Vegas money. We can gamble it. But the difference is I don't get free booze. I don't get to see half-naked people running around. <laughs> yeah, I think you just hit it on the head. I, I think 
I, yeah, you just hit it on the head. It's like I'm dealing. Yeah, I'm treating that account like okay, I, I'm okay gambling with it. Yep. But no, I I shouldn't have that. I shouldn't no. treat it that way. Yeah, it's life or death. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's like the woman in the Philippines saying, "You never know." <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> That's it exactly. Right, right. Love that. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cool, cool. Good question. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for the feedback on that. Other comments or questions? <clears throat> Tim, somebody uh, you talked before about blocking someone. Somebody uh, typed in and they said, "I blocked a sibling from text and phone calls and told her so because of her toxic influence." So some of us have to do it with friends. Some of it have to do it with maybe distant family. And some of us have to do it with people that are much closer. So it does happen. Um, let's see what else we got in here. Yeah, Patrick, you're correct. Ah, interesting. Uh, I want to ask if they want to come on and talk about it. They don't have to, but what they wrote in here was, wow, this Roth IRA trade versus regular account thing is great. And I'm going to need to talk to myself for a long time tonight. So I think what they're saying is to realize the, the realization of you don't take crap setups. You wait for the foundational setups, the high batting average, the high, the, what's the word I'm saying? The high kill zone right? Expecting to win as opposed to hoping to win just to, you know, to solve, to satisfy my, the, the need to put money at risk, right? The gambling approach. This isn't a gamble. It's an expectation of winning. All right. When did we come back? We go for an hour and 20. All right. Let me keep going. All right, next page. Oops, did I talk about Kramer yet? I don't think I did. So let me talk on Kramer for a couple minutes because some of you ask about him. Let me just reiterate a few things that may help you. Kramer probably doesn't say enough, but he does say regularly that he has about an 18-month time horizon when he's looking at the suggestions that he's making. <clears throat> also, he will often recommend buying on the way down and selling on the way up. I definitely agree on the selling on the way up. Totally disagree with buying on the way down. You buy on the rise, you sell on the rise. So you have to be aware of that. <clears throat> when Kramer says sell, 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 that does not mean that you're going out and buying an, an option, not, not going out and buying a put. It can mean that there's not much upside remaining. What you do is you analyze to, first to see if the stock moves well, and then analyze what, the, what you see on the charts. No different than what you always do. <clears throat> and that's how you can then ascertain or determine if there actually is a put trade being set up. <clears throat> if you've tracked these enough, typically what you'll see is the stock will move down for the next day or two after Kramer comes out and says, sell, sell, sell. 
but then it's going to continue back in the direction of the bigger charts. And all you have to do is pay attention to the indicators. No different than what you do on anything else. <clears throat> Next thing is gaps. We covered gaps earlier. You got gap up to go up and gap down to go down. But most importantly is you have to trade the indicators. You don't go brain dead just because there's a gap. And a lot of times the gap will get tested. So if you have a gap up and the bigger chart indicators are pointing down, then we're very likely to go back and test the gap. You'll see lots of gaps around earnings, but you've always got to pay attention to the indicators. Nothing changes. <clears throat> you just expect the gaps to be tested. So as an example, you have earnings. So good news comes out on a stock, maybe related to earnings. You expect the stock to gap up and you watch for it then to retrace back a little bit. <clears throat> and maybe then you look to enter after it's backed up and now it's starting to rise again. But you don't just look at a single time frame chart, you're looking at the entire picture. Because if you just focus in on one time frame, greed's gonna get you and it's gonna make you jump into a trade immediately after the gap. You gotta be aware of that. So gap up to go up and gap down to go down usually happens, but it's not instantly. Also, when you're looking at the charts, <clears throat> it's on the smaller charts that you're gonna see more gaps than you do on the bigger ones. So, well, why is that? Well, it's due to overnight news. And the news may not be important enough to show a gap on a daily chart, but it can look huge on the 55. And typically a gap on a smaller chart will fill by the end of the day. <clears throat> but when you're looking at a larger time frame on a daily, that small chart gap, it never registers in your mind as a gap on the daily chart. As an example of that, picture a picture of a, a fairly good sized white body candle. And now picture the next day, and you also have a white body candle, but that candle is smaller than the one to its left. So it's kind of the opposite of an engulfing candle. The one on the left is good size, the one on the right is smaller. But let's say they're both white. So what that means then, if you think about it, <clears throat> there actually was a gap from the close of Monday to the open of Tuesday. It gapped down and it rose up, rose up the rest of the day, but it didn't get as high as the high on Monday. So you've got a big white body candle followed by a smaller white body candle, which is contained within the body of the one to its left. That's a gap. If you look at that on a 55, it looks like a sizable gap. But when you look at it on a daily, you don't see it that way. Go back and look at a couple of those. You'll see what we're talking about. Or when Chris brings up charts later on, if I see one, I'll point it out to you. Um, what that says then, because of that tendency to, to have them like that, where they show up more on the 55, you're going to see the best gaps showing up on the bigger charts, both the daily and the 233. And those are the ones that are most reliable. And then keep in mind, the daily chart takes days, candles, to change the indicators. You know, every chart takes candles to change the indicator, but on the daily chart, those candles translate to days.
Next thing is talk about earnings trades. Um, I think Chris has talked about this before with earnings guidance. I don't think I need to go through this. But it's written out there. We'll go through it later on today. I'm sure we've gone through this before. In fact, I know we have. In looking at briefing, looking for guidance and look for the upcoming, sorry, looking for companies that meet Jesus, that beat earnings and raised guidance, which sells their forecasting well coming up into the next earnings cycle, which show up starting at the first part of July. So we got another we ballpark 30 days. Say it again. We did that in the, in the prior classes, no? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Somebody confirmed that? You just did. No, no, I mean, uh, somebody new in class. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we, well, I know we've done this. Anybody? We did it in February. We did, we, yeah. we did this. Maybe cool. uh, just take it out of the. Uh... Yeah, we'll shift that around. All right, what do we got? 315, let me keep going. <clears throat> so uh, next thing, question. yeah, go ahead. Do we do the uh, earnings uh check check for the earnings guidance like every week is that the right frequency for for potential candidates to do earnings trade you you could do it every week i wouldn't every couple of weeks i it's think it's more fine. it's more on a monthly basis oh, i see okay thanks yeah because if there's a new name uh, that that means they just announced earnings and they're not going to, you know, uh, come up on earnings announcement in in like at least a few months, right? Mm. I mean, yeah, check the briefing and then look for those that has beat earnings. This one we do it on a monthly basis. Yeah, on a monthly basis because uh, I think from briefing they give you. You know, in, in, in the past, it was like, kind of like the 30 days, right? The last 30 days or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, if you check, you, you let's say you check it in a month later, uh, you know, you'll find new names on there. But let's say, you know, if you didn't check it within that month, let's say a week out, you didn't check it. There's a new name that comes up there. You'll catch it when oh. you, you know, check it within a month. It's still, it'll still be there. Uh, but again, when they, when they appear, it's not like they're going to give you, you, they're not within that trading period for you to even, you know, uh, uh, do those planned trades yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be concerned about, oh, missing something. Um, because let's say, you know, we're, we're just finishing up earnings announcement now mm -hmm. and that's ABC stock comes out and say, oh, we did well. They're not, you know, they're not going to be on your radar until like, you know, two and a half, uh, months out. Right. Does that make sense? Or at least two months out um, about that, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you check every month, that'll that'll give you enough time to uh, put it on your list and prepare for that uh, upcoming announcement. I see. Sounds good. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Let me keep other questions or can I keep going? Keep going, you're gonna get more group hug sessions. <laughs> <laughs> That's Chris's way of saying, we don't need to do this group hug stuff. <laughs> All right, 
right, next thing, talk about favorite stocks. Um, there's a lot of you that I hear from where you'll say, you know, you love trading this stock or that stock or the other, it's your favorite. Some other high flying, some high flying stock name, that's great. No problem. Everyone here now has been, everyone that's here on the call now has been practicing. If you took the class in September, took POWs then, and you joined Fast Track right away, you're still, what, about five months, four or five months away from, or six months away from your year of paper trading ending. So you've been practicing for at a minimum six, seven months. Many of you are trading real money at this point. And what happens in that, in your history, whatever, if that history is seven months or if that history is 70 months, you learn to develop or not learn, you end up developing a comfort level with certain stocks. And without even realizing, maybe not using the word, they do become one of your quote unquote favorites. But you gotta understand having a list of favorite stocks is absolutely, totally wrong. You cannot have favorite stocks. It's the wrong thought process. You don't get to pick which stocks and stocks and charts to trade. The only stocks you trade are those that move. You look at all the charts, and when you do that, that will help you determine which stocks and which time frames that you're going to trade. And the bigger the chart, the better. So along those lines, the biggest chart we look at is the monthly. And we're checking it at least three times per year at the beginning of each trading season. You don't study it per se. Sometimes just a quick visual check is fine. Now, some of you keep the monthly up all the time. That's fine too. It's just a quick glance what it's doing. But understand that monthly chart, whoops. That monthly chart takes about 20 to 22 daily candles to form. And you don't want to get so caught up in what the monthly is doing when you're one day into the month, as an example. With the monthly chart, keep in mind the summer season began about three weeks ago on the 1st of May. If you're a POW student, you hear me say it starts about mid-May. The reason for the difference is mentally you want to be about two-ish weeks ahead of where you expect the trading season to change. And just like everything else we do, we're paying attention to the indicators on the monthly chart, not the candles, but the indicators. And the, by doing that, the monthly can give you a much bigger picture of how the whole year will play out. Because think about it this way, a pause on the monthly chart, when Chris was going through showing the charts earlier and looking at the markets and sectors, there were a couple of spots where he was saying, yeah, the month looks like it's just going sideways. I may just pause here for a while. Understand a pause on the monthly chart. Let's say it pauses for three candles. Realize that's 60 days. It's 13 weeks. Now it can move around within that, but that still is a long time for the pause when you think about it from a monthly perspective. So you got to keep these thoughts in mind. Next thing to talk about is using put leaps for insurance. It's a rare thing and hopefully you'll never have to do it. When there's stock specific news on one of your LTH stocks, you gotta be aware 
that stock-specific news sometimes can be permanent. So when you hear stock-specific bad news, it means it's potentially catastrophic bad news. What you look to do is buy puts and buy leaps. So way out in time, you're going to find the at the money is cheaper. In the money is going to be a lot more pricey. But you look to buy it as far out as available. And you want to buy at least 20% more coverage than you own. So if you own 1,000 shares, there'd be 10 contracts buying at least 20% more. So it'd be at a minimum, you're going to buy 12 contracts. So about 15-ish years ago, <clears throat> BP, British Petroleum, uh, then an oil rig that blew up in the Gulf of Mexico. Let's say that BP was one of your LTH stocks. If you hear about that news, you instantly go buy put leaps on BP. So you say, wait a minute, BP, that's headquartered, not in the U.S. I get it. Understand what I'm saying. Bad news on something like that, put leaps would be an appropriate reaction to hearing that type of news. It's stock-specific bad news is where you buy put leaps. You can also look to do that when you've got market catastrophic news. So you look to buy put leaps. <clears throat> I've got a note here. I think I talked about it earlier. I've been talking about um, the Spanish flu since I first started teaching fast track. And people kind of thought I was a little nutty, a little bit of a, I don't know, a fear monger. I don't know what the right word is. And then when COVID hit, nobody looks at me like I'm nuts anymore. Now you think I'm putting in just because I'm like, oh, well, of course you look back 2020. These notes that I have in there have been in there since I did the first class back in the early 2010-ish, 12, 13, whatever year we started doing this. Back in 2013, oh, there it is. Back in 2013, in the first year of doing Fast Track, I was talking about the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918 and 1919. And I was telling people, go back and study what happened 100 years ago because it could repeat. And I was talking about it then back in 2013 because they had something called the Zika virus. It was being carried by mosquitoes. <clears throat> about a and you all know the history on this, right? Because we've seen it now with COVID. A third of the world was stricken. In the US, more than a quarter, of the, little over, more than a quarter of the population was stricken. And there were estimates that about 5% of the world's population died. And they estimate that just under 700,000 people in the US died in one year from the flu. But 100 years ago, people moved around a lot less easily than they do today. And because of that, now disease spreads a lot faster. The stuff you all know this just based on what you saw in COVID. And history repeats. In 2013, the other looming event I was talking about was Iran. Something like 40% of the world's oil goes through a region of the world called the Straits of Hormuth, H O R M U T H. And over the years, Iran's leadership has hinted that they will plant mines. Understand, if one ship hits a mine, that says it impacts 40% of the oil in the world. Because 40% of the oil goes through those straits. 
I was totally wrong on that one. I was wrong about the country. It wasn't Iran. It ended up being Russia. <clears throat> right? I was also talking about how Iran and Venezuela working in cahoots could have an impact on a significant portion of the world's oil. I was wrong on the country, but I was correct on the impact of the globe. You're seeing it now with Russia, with Ukraine. If something like that happens, you immediately go insure your LTH. And then and only then do you think about how to make money via trading on that event, whatever that event is. Hey, Chris, you wanna, uh, can I flip it over to you? You wanna do um, historical research? Show an example of it. Chris, can I just ask a quick question before you hand off? Sure, go. So is there is there a, is there a rule around how quick you have to do this? So if this pops up today and it takes you till uh, you know a couple of days to go out and buy those put leaps, is that still okay? Is there a way to, to tell or something we should be doing to see how expensive relative to that that leap is now to buy? So Eric, let me ask you, if something like that were to go on, how quickly do you think the market would react? That's why I'm asking you, like instantaneously. Yes, the, the, the it would be very quick. Yeah. And the longer you wait, the more costly it could be. Okay. But there's no, there's no, there's no point in where, uh, you know, because it was like through the banking crisis where I saw the, the bid ask spreads were just, they were silly. Is that the type of thing you would see in this? Is if you start looking at those leaps and the spreads that you just have to sort of from, uh, uh, it's from not going to be cheap. Yeah. Insurance yeah. is, Eric, when your house is on fire, the price of insurance is really expensive. <laughs> if they'd sell it to me at that point, I guess that's a good analogy though, because if they would even sell it to you at that point. So uh, yes, okay. you can get it. you're going to yeah, pay that, for it. But yeah, again, that, you're, you're protecting what remains in the house. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh-huh. Hey, Chris, it's Ryan. But you know, I mean, I was thinking about the most recent banking stuff with the middle mid-range banks. And that was pretty impactful for a little bit. So you could have bought insurance right at that moment, but that might have been premature, right? Because that was kind of banking crisis, sector crisis at that point. But it is, but it's stock specific. It was very stock specific. It impacted the whole sector too, right? For a brief period of time. Understand, but again, but we're talking about this on being stock specific. Oh, okay. Because you also said market catastrophic news, but I guess that's not market catastrophic. That's sector, maybe Correct. sector, Correct. maybe not catastrophic, it, but pretty impactful. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it could end up being market catastrophic, right? Had that continued across the sector, that could have become an issue. It hasn't yet. Right. But when I think of market catastrophic, I'm thinking more of um, a 9-11 type event. It could be, you know, maybe there's some type of terrorist event around oil. Okay. Something like that. That to me is more um, market catastrophic as opposed to stock specific. Okay. And then the 20% versus how you tell us to buy general put insurance using the deltas based on... No, that calculation, this is yeah. specific to 20. Is it just because of the cost or some other thought process? 
No, so I think so, Ryan. If you've if you studied how <clears throat> you've gone back to look at these, um, when you see a stock set up for let's say a put entry, and imagine that you did you see a a, a good looking three x put, uh, sorry, a three a bearish three x larger stock, sorry, larger time frame, and you say, okay, I'll get in here. Imagine if you own the stock and now it's it's a you're hedged basically. So you got 100 shares, you buy one put. And now over a period of time, the stock drops. What you're trying to do in a perfect world, you're trying to offset the decline in stock price with a gain on the put. But if this is going to go on over the period of weeks and months, you're going to have time decay in there as well. And so it's not just a dollar for dollar that you're trying to cover for. You know, if the stock drops 20 points, you'd like to gain 20 points on the put. Mm -hmm. But you're also going to have time decay in there as well. And so at a minimum, and it's just kind of, it's a guesstimate rule of thumb. It's, it's a swag. You know, you've got stuff we all get. The other swag is, is scientific wild-ass guess. Because <laughs> what you're trying to do is to offset what the time decay will be. Right? Because if you bought a deepen the money put with a delta of one you're covered but dude that's really expensive right but if you bought a delta of 50 you've or taught seven. us why double like two two options in that case but again that but now that's just covering the number of deltas that you've got mm -hmm. but now when you get when you throw in some time decay on that you're going to lose more on the stock than you'll gain on the puts okay and so if you bump if you bump that number up a little bit, and Ryan, I don't know if it's 20% or 40% or 50%, it's going to be situationally different, but you want to buy more coverage. I get you more than more than your calculation for put insurance to get to protect time decay. Okay. Exactly. That's exactly it. Clear. And now if you really want to get tricky, I, I wouldn't say do this, but understand this will come into the equation as well, and you won't notice it till April, is that the dollars that you lose on the stock, right? Let's say you end up gaining that on the puts. And let's say you bought another 20, 25% worth. So now you even, you offset the decline of the time decay aspect as well. So say the stock dropped 20, say to 100K on the stock, it dropped 20%. Mm -hmm. you lost 20k and on paper holdings on the stock and you made 20k plus on the puts but guess what depending on your income you may end up having to pay half of that in tax yeah like oh shit Right. <laughs> so and, and cover and yourself entirely but yeah yeah and i don't know i i don't i don't ever try and trade around taxes but I don't know how to cover for that. You just have to be aware you're never going to cover it entirely because you got to pay the tax bill. Yeah. And on and someone can say, well, do the LTH and a raw and an IRA, then you don't have to worry about it. But the the returns you get on the LTH are the smallest across all of your holdings. To me, it doesn't make sense to do that in an IRA. I want to be able to get a bigger, a bigger return. So it's the to me, the LTH should be in a taxable account. You just have to understand you're going to have to pay a tax bill on that. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome.
right, Mr. Lamb, are you there? <laughs> 